0: Today is September 4th, 2012, and my guest is Brian Nosek, professor of psychology at the University of Virginia. Brian, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. Our topic today is the reliability of research findings in the social sciences, particularly psychology, though I'm sure we'll be talking about economics as well. And our discussion will be based on a recent paper you wrote with Jeffrey Spies and Mark Model. and the title is Scientific Utopia Part 2 – Restructuring incentives and practices to promote truth over publishability. And it was prepared for a special issue of perspectives on psychological science. I'd like you to start by telling the story, uh, the the way that you tell at the beginning of your paper on your research finding where you looked at the ability of political extremists on the left and the right to detect shades of gray, literal shades of gray using their physical vision. Uh, how did that experiment, how did that experiment work? What were you trying to do?
1: Yeah, well, we were interested in in a very popular area of research in psychology right now, which is embodiment—the sense that uh, many of our social concepts can actually have a physical basis in our in our everyday activity uh, and our physiology. Uh, and so, we uh, have an interest in political ideology, uh, and so we recruited participants from the political left, center, and right. Uh, and had them do a a very simple task. Uh, The task is to look at a word that was printed in a shade of gray uh, and then match the shade of gray on a slider bar from very dark to very light. Uh, And when the person thought that it was uh, the shade that they had selected matched the shade of the word, then they would enter it. Uh, And what we calculated uh, was the accuracy of the person's perception of the shade of gray. And what we found in our initial study was that political moderates uh, were more accurate uh, in estimating the shades of gray than people on the political left or right. Uh, and so we interpreted it as you, as you introduced that political extremists see the world literally as more black and white uh, than moderates do, uh, not just figuratively. Uh, that this has an
0: actual physiological basis in some way—an incredible finding—and uh, you're going to be oh, famous as, as a result. You're, that's just that's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we
1: planned our, our career banquets and the awards that we were going to receive based on <laughs> finding this amazing result. So we were stunned by it.
0: But, uh, but something happened on the way to the um, the the the, uh, the gravy train. What, what was that? Yes.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, the in. All of social sciences, a very recent topic of conversation is how reproducible is uh, the science, right? Can we replicate results that we've found? And there are many reasons uh, that uh, results might not replicate so easily. Um, And we are in a fortunate position in our laboratory that we have very easy access to data collection. We run websites where lots and lots of people come to visit and try out uh, our studies and do different things. Uh, And so it's very easy for us to do a replication. Uh, And so we thought we would do uh, what we should do, Uh, and even though we got a clear result the first time, we'll just run it again uh, just to make sure uh, that we get the same result again uh, before we submit it to publication. Uh, And so we did. We we ran the same study over again using a very slightly different sample but otherwise uh, very similar, uh, using plenty of power and plenty of participants to detect the result at the effect size, uh, and it did not replicate. We didn't get the result
0: again. You got no effect whatsoever, no difference in the ability of moderates to compare to extremists.
1: Right. Right. A very ordinary result that would not change our careers
0: one bit. uh, And so you threw those results out because obviously those weren't interesting uh, or important, and you just published the ones that you would found in the first uh, run-through, Correct. Right, I wish we had done that. (laughs) We didn't uh,
1: because we knew we had collected those results and our lab mates knew that we had collected those results. Darn, you
0: shouldn't have told them.
1: (laughs) Uh, I know. It was a big, big mistake. Uh, Uh, And so what we were confronted with was a mixed bag. You know, our initial result could still be true, right? It could be the case that political extremists see the world in black and white to a greater extent than moderates do. Uh, But this null result uh, provides some pause. And we don't have an obvious alternative explanation for why we didn't get it the second time because we did the same thing. It was on the same kind of uh, infrastructure. We had the same procedure. So many things uh, were in common between the two studies. Uh, Really, the only difference was that we had run it again with a a new sample of participants, but we ran plenty of participants. So at minimum, it provides some caution in in taking the first result as truth. Uh, that perhaps that was a false positive, perhaps it occurred uh, by chance, um, and so it it might be true, but we don 't know it 's true, and so it 's going to be much harder to publish now with both of these together because a re- reviewer would reasonably say, "Well, hang on a second, maybe it 's not true so, so I'm going to you be said it again
0: you said that at a minimum it, it would mean it called it into question at a maximum. Yeah. What would you conclude? It's, I don't know if this is the maximum is the right word, but uh, the other extreme would be um, that that first result was just something went was wrong. It wasn't accurate. It wasn't reliable. It wasn't wasn't true.
1: Right, right. And even if we had done everything right, right, even if our analysis was appropriate, even if our data collection was was good and sound, our procedures were were solid it could still have just occurred by chance. And that's part of what statistical inference is about, is we are looking probabilistically at the likelihood of these things happening. So we always have that possibility that it occurred by chance. Uh, but more so uh, are the possibilities that we did little things in our initial analysis that made it more likely for us to get a result that looked good for us, right? We, uh, when we were deciding which participants to exclude, uh, we might have, in our data analysis, we might have seen, well, when we exclude these participants, the effect gets a little stronger. And so we would, might have felt that, well, that's probably a little bit more justified to exclude those participants. Uh, when we were deciding about covariates, uh, we may have um, used some degrees of freedom of including some covariates, not including other covariates, and then found more compelling uh, those analyses where the results looked better for
0: us what do you mean by but covariates? Once we had
1: done all of those things once we had had that particular analysis strategy, those covariates, these other things, then when we replicate, we presumably would have to use all of those same things again, and so we 're much more constrained uh, in our reanalysis now of a new data set, uh, and so we don't have the same opportunity to take advantage of chance because we- when we can make all of these different decisions of what should I exclude and what should I, what other things should I do. Uh, We are leveraging chance, right? We are taking our opportunities to get results
0: that look good for us. Uh, That's if you're, um, yeah. That's if you're aware of it at least. When you say when you say covariates, you mean other variables that might affect the results.
1: Yeah. So there's, you know, whenever someone does an analysis uh, of a data set, there it isn't always perfectly clear how the analysis should be done. Uh, we start with the data set, and then we have to make some decisions, sometimes a lot of decisions, about what's the appropriate way to analyze these data. And so it, it is, um, the researcher has many opportunities to do things that could increase the chances of getting a result that looks good for the researcher, that helps the researcher. And, and even though you know, my colleagues and I were very genuinely trying to analyze this data reasonably and accurately and everything else, it's quite possible that without our awareness, we were influenced by what was coming up as we were doing our data analysis and sort of pushing the data in the direction of finding something that helps us.
0: So we're ruling out here, we're not going to be talking about fraud. Uh, obviously, you could have right. changed some of the scores when you realized that the results, if you had done that the first time and it didn't come out, uh, as we'll be talking about, nobody, very few journals want to publish an article that finds no relationship uh, between two things that might right. not be related. And so you'd realize, oh, we're wasting our time here. And so you could have fudged the data, as they say, and, and fraudulently entered into your statistical spreadsheet or pa- software package different findings than were actually done. That's fraud. Uh, that's right. C- right. conscious. Right. Yeah, yeah. If
1: I was willing to commit fraud, and I'm quite sure that this paper would be published by now, yeah. <laughs> and our careers would be skyrocketing. At or least, whatever. But at least in the short run. Know, so, we're confident run. enough with our principles and values that we are trying to do a good job. We are genuinely trying to do good science. But that doesn't mean that we're not vulnerable to some of the reasoning and rationalizations that. Comp- that uh, leverage the incentives for what it means to be successful in science. But as you point out, but as you
0: point, uh, out, as you point out in your paper, as you point out in your paper, uh, fraud's risky. You can get caught, and and so right. even if you're a good human being, uh, even if you're if you're not a good human being, you still might not be a fr- want to do fraud. But even good right. human beings or have to struggle with the incentives that that we're going to talk about. I'm going to actually read a quote um, from the beginning of the paper. You say. The real problem is that the incentives for publishable results can be at odds with the incentives for accurate results. This produces a conflict of interest. The conflict may increase the likelihood of design, analysis, and reporting decisions that inflate the proportion of false results in the published literature. Um, and then one more, which is my favorite. Uh, you say, publishing is also the basis of a conflict of interest between personal interests and the objective of knowledge accumulation. The reason? Published and true are not synonyms. To the extent that publishing itself is rewarded, then it is in scientists' personal interest to publish regardless of whether the published findings are true. And my favorite line in there is the phrase, uh, the sentence, published and true are not synonyms. I think that would make a good T-shirt uh, for econ talk uh, and, and many of our listeners would sympathize with that statement. But for those who are not normal listeners to econ talk or who are skeptical, this is a slightly depressing idea. I think a lot of people have this image of scientists and, and professors, researchers as truth seekers. And you're suggesting here that truth seeking can be derailed by the personal incentives that the researcher faces.
1: Yeah, that's right. And the, the additional challenge is that what's ultimately truth isn't determined by any single contribution. Because we're dealing with probabilis- probabilistic inference, uh, we're trying to accumulate evidence for a particular claim, uh, we will have lots of instances of claims that don't hold up after repetition. Uh, And that is entirely ordinary. That's kind of how it works. Uh, And so people can find it disconcerting to one year find out that eating this kind of food uh, will extend your life. And then two years later find out that eating that food will actually shorten your life and think, oh, my gosh, science is broken. They can't make up their minds uh, which one it is. Um, But really, that's just reflecting... What, what happens uh, in science is that we find some evidence here, we find some different evidence there, uh, and then we converge toward uh, the, the accurate solutions. The Added challenge to that is what, is what we're talking about in terms of the incentives uh, in these papers, which is certain kind of result, kinds of results are valued more than others. Uh, and because of that, the day-to-day decisions that I make in my laboratory are going to be influenced. Subtly, without my intention, uh, in order to help me have the best career outcome I can, uh, and that can also get the way of getting to truth faster.
0: And we have to, you know, for those of us who spent time in the kitchen—that would be me and you—in uh, the kitchen of statistical analysis, right? And we know yeah. what kind of, you know, things get put back on the plate, and others get pushed under the under the rug. Um, I want to disagree with, with one thing you said a minute ago about science You know, advances through these findings that turn out to be true or not true, and then they get confirmed or not confirmed. I think a lot of what gets reported in the newspaper in psychology results, in economics results, and in epidemiology uh, – and I want to use epidemiology because it's not your field or mine, uh, which is the one you just alluded to where you find out that caffeine – it's bad for you, then you find caffeine's good for you. Fat's bad for you, now fat's good for you. Uh, I don't right. think, I really don't see those as science um, because we don't really understand the, the biology of those relationships. We really don't understand the chemical uh, makeup of caffeine well enough to, and the human body's functioning to understand that relationship. So it's a fishing expedition often in the data and the fact that sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not true. All of these psychological um, confirmation bias problems come into play and people get published and get attention by finding that something kills you or doesn't. And I don't, I just don't put much stock in a lot of it. Cause I know, as you said, so many decisions had to be made in how the data were analyzed. Forget the science. Yeah. There's just not enough science there.
1: Yeah, and it is a real challenge because of the underlying complexities. And so both of the things can be true, right? So, caffeine yeah. can be good for you and bad for you. And <laughs> probably both are true given certain constraints. Uh, and we don't, part of the scientific process is identifying what those constraints are. So, we have two different challenges. One is that we can get contradictory findings that are both true. We just don't know why they're both true, right? There are the moderating or mediating variables underlying it that we haven't yet identified for when this will occur in this way versus when it will occur in that way. And that's a, a theoretical challenge, right? It's a, a challenge of explanation for identifying the circumstances for one or the other. The other challenge that's confronted by these different things is, is what you're referring to, I think, in, the, in the, you know, the, the factors that elicit the results in the first place which is, I just need to get results that I can publish. Uh, And those aren't about figuring out what the underlying explanations are. Those are are identifying what's the appropriate way to pursue the analysis, and are we actually pushing the analysis in one direction through the everyday decisions of the scientist rather than the underlying phenomena that we're trying to figure out.
0: And you list, um, I think it's 10, 9, I'm sure there's more, but you list nine ways that uh, people can practice, as you call them, that are justifiable sometimes, but it, they also run the risk of increasing the proportion of published false results. And again, this is where you've got the data, but the data don't speak. You've got to torture them or at least whack them or give them a, yeah. give them a bang, a hit, and here's the nine, here are nine things, and you have many in the paper. You have many citations that – discuss each of these uh, leverage chance by running many low powered studies rather than a few high powered ones uncritically dismiss failed studies as pilots or due to methodological flaws but crit- uncritically accept successful studies as methodologically sound selectively report studies with positive results and not studies with negative results every time stop data collection as soon as a reliable effect is obtained continue data collection until a reliable effect is, atta- is attained obtained include multiple independent or dependent variables and report the subset that worked. Seven, maintain flexibility in design and analytical models, including the attempt of a variety of data exclusion or transformation methods. Report a subset. Uh, report a discovery as if it had been the result of a confirmatory test. Uh, and once a reliable test effect is obtained, do not do a direct replication. Uh, shame on, on them. Um, so these are... Uh, you know we had Ed Lemer econometrician on here uh who has made the same critique of economic findings typically that classical statistical tests of significance don't hold when you're constantly uh doing uh data dredging and looking around and trying ninety seven different specifications,
1: right, so it's like right. they very rapidly become irrelevant because you're just uh you're adding up all of these different uh uh, chances that you have to find an effect, uh, and then still using the same criterion, p less than 0.05, just on the the one final
0: one that you report. So, what do we do about this? I mean one one obvious question is, what's wrong with these journals that publish these unreliable results? Why do they publish them? Why should shouldn't they reject them?
1: Yeah, well the. Uh, it, it's a tough problem, um, and part of the pr- reason that it's a tough problem is that journals have their own sets of incentives that in- encourage the publication of uh, that. That I think foster uh, this situation. And the, the challenges that journals face is that they want prestige, uh, they want attention, they want to be at the forefront of innovation. Uh, and innovation is really what drives science, right? We we. The, the exciting part of science is pushing at the boundaries of knowledge of of seeking out things that are challenging to our current conceptions of how things work uh, and whenever we 're pushing at the boundaries of knowledge whenever we 're pursuing innovation, we are by definition pursuing risk right? they're, they're risk in the sense that we 're going to be wrong a lot when we 're trying to find out stuff that 's new uh, and but at the same time, that's what we're trying to do. That's what science really is is in the business of doing. Uh, so there is a discovery or an innovation component. And then the, the other side of it uh, that would be the fix is kind of boring. And that <laughs> is confirmation or verification of taking an idea that someone has claimed uh, and then repeating it to see if it holds up, trying it in a slightly different way that it should still hold and seeing if it happens there, too. Uh, and that does not have the same excitement value, even though it's just as important, right? Finding out a new idea versus figuring out whether it's true. In sort of the abstract, I would say both of those things are pretty important. <laughs> but we're strongly tilted as a, uh, as in scientific discipline to value the, the first one, the innovation part, uh, at the expense of the verification part. Uh, it would be nonsensical to completely reverse it. only do verification, then we wouldn't actually do anything new. Um, But the the challenge is in trying to to rebalance it enough so that those things that are having some importance that are getting into the journals uh, because of their primary incentives, uh, to have some mechanisms to encourage the verification of those more interesting, more
0: challenging, more provocative findings. So you raise the question, the paper of self-correction, you, you raise the question, isn't, isn't science self-correcting? And you say, no. Why isn't it? Why isn't it that eventually we'll find out which results are solid and which results are not?
1: Yeah, well, I, I would agree with uh, the notion that eventually we'll find out, but I think we are – uh, when we use this the, the the common trope of oh science is self correcting when we we talk about eventually we mean a very very long time <laughs> uh, and 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 that's not okay with me I think we waste a lot of resources and time and energy uh, believing things that we could get uh, get out of the literature much more quickly uh, or at least clarify much more quickly quickly the conditions under which they're true uh, and so I think the the self correction can happen. A lot faster on important stuff if we just make a few tweaks uh, to the incentives uh, to try to make it so that some degree of verification is part of the ordinary practice of science uh, and can get into the, the journals uh, more easily.
0: So one suggestion is to have a journal of replication, right? a, pl- a journal that, right. Uh, where results are, are confirmed, and you're not very optimistic about that solution.
1: No, and it's been tried many times because people, you know, this is not a new problem. Uh, we've known about the challenges for replication and null results for a long time. It's been part of the, the discussion of research methodology for, you know, the last 40 years. So I'm I'm certainly not saying anything new. Uh, and many have tried by introducing a, a journal of null results or a journal of replications. Uh, and they struggle to succeed primarily because they are journals that are defined by the fact that they're publishing things that no other journals will publish, which means we are a crummy journal.
0: <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> uh,
1: and and that's, not, that's not a strong incentive for any individual scientist to bother writing up a result for that journal. Uh, so I don't think it makes sense to define a journal based on its, it publishing things that other places won't. Instead, I think the solutions need to integrate better into the existing publication structures um, so that the individual scientists have a stronger reason
0: to try to publish the results. So how before we talk about some of the ways that you think we can make it better, how big a problem do you think this is in, um, in psychology? Because I think it's, it's an enormous problem in economics to the point where I've argued that very, very few, if any, economists are convinced by multivariate regression results, statistical analyses of complex phenomena – We can't settle how many jobs are created by the stimulus. We can't settle what the multiplier is. Uh, We can't even agree on whether the minimum wage reduces uh, employment. And when you argue about that, you produce a statistical study, and the other side's got their statistical study too. And you're stuck saying, well, mine's better than yours. Um, And and it's bizarre in in economics. What's the problem in psychology, do you think? Yeah,
1: well, I think it's a big problem there too, Uh, but – The surprising fact is that we don't really know. There isn't much empirical evidence in economics or in psychology or in any other subdiscipline for that matter uh, that really gives a good estimate of how reproducible the science is. And that is, to me, the most surprising gap of all of this is that we have lots of worries Uh, We have lots of reasons to have worries. The list that you generated uh, from the paper before, uh, we have, you know, all of these are good reasons to be concerned that we're biasing our research literature, but we just really have no clue how biased the research literature is. And so, one of the projects that uh, I'm involved with is called the Reproducibility Project, uh, and it is a research effort to try to estimate the reproducibility of psychological science. So, in that project, we have a sample of of journals from 2008 in psychology, three different important journals in psychology, uh, and the team of researchers, which right now numbers uh, 72 different researchers from 41 different institutions, uh, each are working in small groups or teams uh, to replicate one or more of the studies from those those journals. And so from that, we'll get at least some initial estimate of how reproducible the science is and you know, hopefully, that will spur many other investigations like that, so we can understand better whether there wh- whether there is a big problem, as as you and I both intuit, it, uh, and the extent of it. Right? Because it it could be the case that really a lot of this isn't something to be worried about. That the peer review system just works so beautifully uh, <laughs> that it manages to screen out all of these problems before they get in the literature.
0: I, stifle. I don't think that's
1: particularly yeah. plausible. Yeah, uh, but. But it's possible.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I stifle, I stifle a wild whoop of laughter. But uh, <laughs> l- let me mention a recent uh, uh, issue that came up in psychology that, that we talked about on this program with Ed Young, a science journalist. And I, I want to I raise it because it, your idea of going back to 2008, although grand, ha- has some challenges and I'm curious how you're going to handle them. So in this study, I don't remember the name of the researcher, maybe you will, the, uh, they wanted to find out whether if you used words related to old age in the experiment, people would leave the experiment more slowly, kind of shuffling out. Um, And they found out that that is indeed what happened. Uh, The experiment wasn't about old age. It was about something else. But in the course of the experiment, they subtly injected words about senior citizens or old age or something. I don't know exactly how it was done. And they found that people who left the room more slowly, which you know, for me, those kind of results don't even pass the sniff test to start with. I have all the skepticism we've been talking about, but it was a big deal. This guy's a, a well known established scholar. The paper's been, I think it's the most cited paper in psychology in the last X years. Except when people tried to replicate it, they found it didn't replicate. Now, the original scholar said, Oh, you didn't do it right. So the yeah. question is you know, it's really different than. Uh, you know, combining hydrogen and oxygen and seeing if you get water. It, it maybe uh, is it. And how do you how do you quote replicate these kind of psychological studies?
1: Yeah, I, it's a great point. Uh, and that paper you're referring to, John Barge is the uh, right. the primary author of that, and then some of his collaborators were involved in the original uh, result. And that is a, it's a very important paper for my sub discipline in psychology of, of implicit social cognition and automaticity. Uh, so that is uh, a paper and, and related ones that have been a very important basis of my substantive research interests. Uh, and it, it is a good example of raising some of the important issues for reproducibility that are different than um, false positives. So one possibility is that that original result is a false positive, although I'll note that he, uh, in the original paper, there's a replication of the result. So that they got it twice uh, in, the, in the original paper. Now, in, in subsequent research, others uh, have had trouble getting the result, uh, and that could mean that those original ones were false positives, even though they did it twice. It could also mean that there's really a lot of subtlety uh, in the how one conducts the procedure uh, or other conditions of that particular setting, of how the materials are delivered, of how the timing is done, of how people interact with the participants that are very important uh, for obtaining the result. Uh, And those are important things to consider in the context of reproducibility. Failing to replicate doesn't mean that the original result is false. It could mean that. Correct. But it doesn't unambiguously mean that. And so what one has to do in really systematically looking to build a cumulative science and to gain confidence in the reproducibility of science is also look at the other factors that may be influencing reproducibility. And one of them could be expertise and attention to the nuance and details uh, that one doesn't necessarily know uh, are relevant um, and or wouldn't know just by reading the methods. And so one of, the, one of the tasks of the reproducibility project is to try to identify predictors of reproducibility like these uh, that are separate from the original results being false. Uh, and another thing that the, the project does is engage with the original researchers as much as possible uh, before conducting the data collection to make sure that it is a fair test uh, of the original design. Right, and that is a good way to try to get rid of many of these sort of misunderstandings of what the original design even was. Correct. Uh, is if the original researcher can look at it and say, oh, well, geez, you forgot this, or oh, my God, you don't have X in there, and you say, well, geez, it wasn't in the method section. Well, not everything gets into the method section, uh, and so having that uh, back and forth can be
0: very useful. Yeah, when the guy uh, – And then just a- – when, when the Sorry, guy go ahead. You know, when the guy leaves the room, if he's going really quickly and he's gotten the old senior citizens, if you have to know to grab him by the sleeve to slow him down, I mean, you might not know that.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, right. There, you know, there could be other factors like yeah, that, though. You know, then we you have not. a whole different set of questions. Right? We
0: hope not. But you know, I've <laughs> suggested, right, okay. I've suggested that, and this is a shows the challenges of this. I think in the social sciences, you, know, you just said something very interesting. You said, you know, you have to. I forget how you said it. That, that you know the the um, the methodology, it's hard. What was the phrase you used? You have to be, it's hard to know how it's complicated. It, there's a lot of factors involved in how you actually implement the experiment. What's the, what's the right lingo for that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And there might, yeah, there might be very lots of nuance in the particular uh, implementation of the procedures.
0: But in That's economics, in economics, we're usually not working with human beings. We're working just with the data that someone else has collected from a government yeah. survey. You know, I've suggested you, you just, you have to videotape. Uh, what you do while you're analyzing the data, or just do a, a, you know, an ongoing screencast of all the different regressions you ran and all the different statistical analyses you did so that people could go back and see how many times you decided, oh, well, that result, that one doesn't count because that variable, oh, I need to change it a little bit, or that's an outlier. Uh, you know, yeah. it's one thing to say, well, we threw out some outliers and it didn't change the results, which is the way it's often, uh, phrased. Yeah. But, of course, no one wants to watch a 73-hour video of your research um, methodology, your research experience. Right.
1: right, yeah, and so documenting the workflow is of real value, uh, and even if no one else watches it, the fact that someone else could watch it could be yeah, something that's true. that changes people's behavior, right? Realizing that, oh my god, someone could find out that I've been doing this for 12 hours in order to get that single result. That's true. But the other thing that, that it raises, because there's many occasions in psychology, that are just like you're describing, too, it's not really the nuance in the setting it's, and the procedures themselves. It's really at the analysis phase where a lot of this comes up. Um, but w- w- there are a couple of things that can address it. One is, if you have a strong confirmatory stance, right, you have a strong theory with a strong expectation, is you lay out your analysis plan before uh, actually having access or looking at the data itself. Yeah, so write the whole analysis script out and then register it, right? And so we have this website, Open Science Framework, where people can register their hypotheses, their analysis scripts, before they conduct their analysis. And in strong confirmatory cases, that's a, that, that can be an appropriate thing to do. There's many research applications that are exploratory, where you don't actually have a strong confirmatory test to do, so it wouldn't make sense to register it. But if there is a strong one, then registering in advance reduces your degrees of freedom dramatically, and then another one, which is an interesting variation, is when two, there are two camps, uh, or people that have different perspectives, uh, have them work through an analysis script together that they can agree on, (laughs) if they can agree on. Uh, And if they can't agree on, uh, then it is very interesting to go through the process to identify what control variables, what data exclusion variables, what things are they differing on? Because that's really where the meat of the disagreement is. It may not actually be in the outcomes. It may be in how it is you get to the outcomes. Uh, And then that's really where the substance of the
0: debate needs to be. Yeah, we should be doing that in economics for about 47 different issues. Uh, I think that would be very helpful. I think it's less so in, in psychology. One last question, though, on this uh, issue of self-correction. It's one thing when a result hasn't been established. You know, if, you, if you're, if you let's take your example, you, you posit that maybe there's this physio- physiological relationship that relates to the ideological view, uh, and you don't find anything. Okay, so you have a bias toward finding something, and eventually, maybe you convince yourself that. That that second study that you did, eh, it was a Wednesday, it was, it was raining, yeah. it wasn't reliable, the light was bad on the computer screens of America. So you, you ignore that and you publish it. And Brian Nozick becomes, and, and Mr. Model become very famous for this finding. But then doesn't somebody get fame and glory for shooting it down? Can't you publish that piece after it's, after that piece is out there with this big claim? Can't you come along and say, I've refuted it? Isn't that part of a, the incentive system. Uh,
1: there is some of that, uh, but it's really there for things that get really famous. Uh, it's not there for stuff that's just kind of influential. So the you know the 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 walking study being a, a, a good example of that, right? The the folks that are um, have found evidence that doesn't confirm the original result are able to publish and get some attention for that because it's such an important result in the field, um, but. For the many, many other results in the priming literature, and the, the walking example is just one of, of hundreds of studies uh, that, that show effects of priming some concepts on subsequent behavior, um, it's, it's not worth people's time to go back and confirm that given the existing incentive structures. Uh, because they won't get the same attention. It's like, well, it's, that's not the walking study. That's these other things. And uh, who cares about those, right? We already know that that priming is true. So why do you need to confirm that particular result? Um, so there is a there is a um, uh, it depends on where the, the result is on the continuum. If it's not impacting anybody, it's definitely not worth replicating. Uh, and it probably actually isn't worth replicating in general either because it's not influencing anyone.
0: So you're you're but part of you're part of two projects. You've got. The replication study with the 72 folks, right, trying to go back yeah. to 2008, is that part of the Open Science Framework, or is the Open Science Framework something separate?
1: Well, the Open Science Framework is a more general infrastructure that the reproducibility project is just making use of. Um, so the Open Science Framework is a, um, a system for documenting and archiving and sharing uh, and collaborating uh, r- research results. Uh, And so on that system, people uh, in the social, it's actually any of the sciences, but but most of the users so far are are social scientists. Um, You can document your workflow, uh, and it has collaborative tools to help you with uh, sharing your materials internally in your lab uh, or with your collaborators. uh, And when you're ready to make those material or data public, uh, with a mouse click, they become public and available to others as well. Uh, It offers the opportunity to register your hypotheses or your materials in advance if you choose to do so for those occasions where it's appropriate. Uh, So it's intended to sort of help expose a lot of the workflow uh, to address many of the problems that we know are contributors to these issues, like the file drawer effect. We do lots of studies in my lab that never get published, (laughs) but are actually providing some information that might be useful, right? Failures to replicate our own designs, others' designs. Uh, and others may make, be able to make use of those data. And so, if we have a common system where everyone can post their materials, post their data, share that when they want to share it, uh, then we'll be able to have, I think, a more rapid accumulation of information that will help to address some of these problems.
0: What's uh, what else is going on in your field that would um, to try to fight these issues? Uh,
1: another uh, approach that we are uh, developing uh, is to try to shift the incentive structures within individual journals a little bit uh, for replication. And as we've already discussed, we can't replicate anything, everything, uh, and we don't want to do that. right? We'd spend all of our time on verification and no innovation. Uh, But there are things that are important enough uh, that they should be replicated. We should get more uh, confidence uh, in the accuracy of the results. Uh, but we still don't have good mechanisms for publishing them. And so one possibility that will be um, uh, in the, for the journal Social Psychology, I'll be a, a guest editor in an upcoming uh, issue of that, uh, is to publish important results, uh, replications of important results in social psychology. So it'll be a special issue, and it will send out a call for people to do replications of results that are having a high impact in the field, but aren't getting a lot of replication yet. And so that would be an incentive for the the researcher to actually do a replication knowing that they could get it published in this journal. It also has some incentives for the journal, which is a sort of, you know, a mid-tier journal. Uh, If they publish results of things that are at high impact, they publish replications, then the replications will get relatively strong citations too because they're they're publishing results that are already known to be important results. Uh, So it makes it for the journal something of value. And so this is sort of a, you know, it it is a little nudge uh, to make replication something that's more normative, and to reward those for places where it's important to do it, without overwhelming the system to focus everybody on replication all of the time.
0: What's the PsychFile Drawer project?
1: Uh, PsychFile Drawer is started by Hal Pashler uh, and his colleagues at UC San Diego. Uh, and they take on a, a complementary approach with the Open Science Framework uh, for trying to expose the file drawer. And for uh, at Psych File Drawer, uh, you can, um, have if you have results that are sitting in your file drawer and you don't have <laughs> the motivation, the time, the energy to try to write them up and push them through the normal publication process, uh, you can write up a very short summary. It uh, takes 15 minutes uh, to post at psych File Drawer, what you found in this replication project. Uh, and it is just a repository for you to be able to share results uh, in, a, in a relatively rapid way, relatively low cost to you, uh, about things that might be of interest to others. And so, they also have some social interaction functions where if you have found a result or are interested in a particular problem, and are wondering if other people might be interested in that particular finding or result too. You can register your name there, and if you get connected with other people,
0: uh, you can share information. Um, so it's a, a promising approach. So it's, it's really the, an online journal of unexciting results, but sometimes those are useful because you can find out whether someone else has already looked at something that, and didn't find anything. Isn't that the idea? That's
1: right, and, and it's very lightweight in the sense that you don't have to put in – Tons and tons of hours to try to get this result into the into the uh, atmosphere, uh, as it were. You just have to put a little bit of time in, uh, so that you can share
0: uh, what you have found or not found uh, with other people. And you don't have to spend a lot of time writing the actual article where you shape and, right. and pretend that you found something important and trying to. Uh, yeah, that's good. Right. So um, th- there has not, you know, Ed, I mentioned Ed Lemur before. He's been a pioneer in trying to get economists to um, be self-aware of these problems. And and I think by his own admission, he's not been very successful, somewhat successful, but it hasn't started a revolution. What would you say the general reaction is in the psychology profession to this concern over published versus true?
1: Well, I haven't spoken with everyone, but I have spoken with a lot of people and observed conversations uh, in the field among our leadership and, and others uh, and there is a lot of interest and concern about the issues of replicability and false positives and other things. Uh, and the this, this is concern that has been true for, you know, it, it's particularly true now because there's a lot of high-profile cases, but it is, it is issues that have been of concern for many years. So none of them are very new. And the real challenge that's faced is not with scientist engagement with these because scientists are in the field because they want to find out things that are true. They don't want to waste their time uh, on, uh, on results that aren't true or be finding things that are just going to disappear years later. Uh, so if there's a problem, they're motivated to understand it. The real challenge is translating that interest into actual actions. Uh, how is it that we address it? And so I think the, the main barrier that, that science has confronted uh, is not whether people are interested and willing to ch- try to do something. It's actually figuring out what to do uh, and and doing it. Uh, and so th- instead of hand-wringing, our, the focus of, of our laboratory and, and many of my collaborators is on actually building tools that can help address uh, the problem rather than continuing to worry about what the problem is. And so the Open Science Framework, Uh, is one of those efforts, having special issues uh, devoted to replications as a small contribution on replication is another. Uh, The reproducibility project to actually start to do uh, some replications uh, is another. Uh, And then there are other uh, kinds of uh, efforts that could develop um, that really start to give people ways in which to shift their own personal incentives uh but also to really start to find new new solutions in the field. And an, another example of this is journals like PLOS One. Uh, PLOS One is a, a generalist journal. You can publish in any field of science there. Uh, it's an open access journal. Uh, but what really makes it distinct uh for the purposes of addressing some of the replication issue and file drawer issue is their uh review process. They have standard editors and, and reviewers like anything else, but the review process is explicitly not about the importance of the research. It isn't the journal saying, is this you know a exciting, innovative enough result for us to publish? The review process is solely about the soundness of the research. Are the findings, interpretations justified based on the design? Is the design well conducted? Is the research well done? Uh, without any consideration of importance. And so from that regard, you know, getting published in Plause 1 can be done if the research is well done. It doesn't matter if it's a replication or not. It doesn't matter if it's a null result or not. Uh, And so to the extent that those journals are successful, now note they're not defining themselves as replication or null result journals. Lots of novel research gets published in Plause 1. It's now the biggest journal in the world uh, by far. Uh, But, it. it opens the door to publishing those things. And so once there are outlets, if people are doing some of this stuff, they'll be able to get it into the field. And just having those
0: opportunities will start to shift these incentives. So just to clarify things, PLOS One is PLOS Space One, correct? Right. Yeah, Public
1: Library of Science is the publisher. It's a nonprofit open access publisher. And PLOS One is is this one that has a, a... this kind of review process. And Public Library of Science also has some very high-bar high uh, journals, PLOS Medicine, PLOS Genetics, that have very strict review standards and
0: push for innovation, just like standard journals do. And you mentioned the file drawer problem. We've mentioned that a couple times. Describe what that is for those folks not not used to that term. What what do you mean by that?
1: The file drawer problem is also called the gray literature.
0: uh, And it's
1: essentially just describing the fact that almost every research laboratory or researcher does more research than they publish. And so all of that stuff that is done but not published is sitting in the proverbial file drawer. Now it's, you know, now there's no actual physical file drawer. It's a hard drive, Uh, but, uh, but it's sitting there unpublished. And only that researcher or that lab or a small group knows about it. Uh, And because there are certain kinds of things that get published, positive results are more likely to get published than negative results. Innovative results more likely to get published than confirmatory results or replication results. Uh, Then the the kinds of things that end up in the file drawer uh, are a a different kind of thing. Uh, It's a biased representation in the published literature uh, than what is in the the unpublished literature. And so knowing what's in both of the literatures is, is very useful for understanding what's going on in science.
0: Are you optimistic? You think it's gonna, you're going to make a dent? I'm I'm always optimistic, and that's
1: that's you know my um, uh, my undoing and my redoing. <laughs> I guess is that you know I, if I was pessimistic, if these would have an impact. Then I, I probably wouldn't bother trying them. Uh, but but you know I think you know like any innovation, there's high probability of failure for many of the things that we're doing because they're they're challenging to how it is that the field works now. But if they work they could make a, a, a real difference. Uh, and so you know we're, we're excited to try uh, and see what we can learn about uh, reproducibility in general and whether we can change our own practices uh, in order to align cl- more closely to our values, uh, what scientific values are, openness, transparency, sharing. Sure. Uh, and if we can do that, uh, then we'll have made some progress, even if it's only on ourselves.
0: Now, the 2008, the study going back to 2008, trying to replicate Uh, studies in three different journals. Uh, When that work is completed, how will it be made public?
1: Uh, It's already public. Uh, So anyone can track how the project is going and look at the results and look at the reports and the designs. Uh, All of it's posted on the Open Science Framework, which is just openscienceframework.org.
0: Yeah, we'll put a link to Uh, it.
1: And then we will, uh, once the, the data collections are done, we will write a summary report. Uh, and submit that presumably to a traditional journal, uh, as well as making making it available online with the the rest of the materials.
0: But there was a recent uh, attempt to do this in medicine. Um, yeah. Not sure how reliable it was, but they they took uh, something like the fifty something most important cancer studies, and they were only able to replicate, I think, a handful. Um, yeah. One of the authors allegedly confessed that yes they had run it six times and it only worked once but that they thought that was the interesting result uh okay. so that that's the one they would published on uh, that, that, that's obviously a huge problem that we've been talking about um but i it'll be interesting to see how it turns out in psychology
1: yes what's yes your
0: what's your uh what's your guess
1: well i based uh, on what's out my, there so far. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to guess accurately because I see many reasons to guess one way or the other in different circumstances. The two that, that have been done in medicine were both done by industrial laboratories, Bayer and Amgen, uh, replicating results as a first step towards translating them, uh, the results into you know clinical applications, new therapies, new drugs, pharmaceuticals, whatever. Uh, and so they have, the industrial laboratories have a high value of replication because they don't want to wa- waste their money uh, developing a new drug that has no effect and no impact. Uh, so they want to know right up front is the, is the research coming out of the academic laboratory sound, uh, for us to be able to, to use, to make money. Um, and their their as you said, their results were very dispiriting, right? In one of the studies, it was 11% of the results replicated. The other, it was about 25%. Um, and those are stunningly low. Um, and I, I, I hope that we do better than that. And I think there are a few reasons that we will, uh, in psychology. Um, but, but at the same time, if it was that low, well, geez, all of these fields, biology, uh, chemistry, economics, psychology, we're all confronting many of the same incentives. The individual scientists have, have to get published in order to advance their careers. Uh, and so, we may have a system that's skewed much more uh, than we'd like it to be skewed, but I'd much rather know that it's skewed so that we can do something about it than to keep my head in the sand and just hope it isn't.
0: So let me um, let me ask you a very um, depressing question. Uh, one argument would be that none of this really matters very much. For a lot of us, not all of us, but for a lot of us, what we spend our time doing experimental and analytical statistical analysis about are things that only people who care about them are, are the 73 people who read the journal anyway. Yeah. Um, so nobody really cares Priming whether priming exists, whether using words like old old, and senior and all that isn't really that practical, uh, except for people in the field. Uh, there are a lot of things in economics like that, but there are a lot of things that aren't. There are a lot of things in economics where billions of dollars are spent on obviously on whether Keynesianism is is true, or if Keynesianism is true, the money's well spent. If it's not, it's wasted. So there, there's a big return toward finding out whether things are, are true or not. How do you feel that way in psychology? What do you feel about that? What's uh, imp- what's important? I, what 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 are yeah. forget what's influential? Because it's not the same thing always. Right.
1: Right. Well, it's an important point, and because a lot of times basic science. Uh, where there isn't a clear, direct application, the value of it is not known in advance, right? So you don't know if this is going to turn into something that has large implications for human health or human prosperity or anything else. Uh, But my my general response is, if it's false, then there's no way it's going to have an impact. So really, we want it to be true, and the importance of it can be determined later. That's the promise of basic science, is you don't really know, need to know what impact it's going to have. Just the fact that we now know it is an opportunity to build more knowledge on top of it uh, that starts to address some of the problems that we really care about. But if it's false, then there's no point in it at all.
0: No, but is it, is it the, isn't it worse than that? If it's false, it's dangerous.
1: Pretty if, it's, dangerous if it's too if right. it's false you're right. gonna you're gonna exactly. stop
0: drinking coffee or start drinking yeah. coffee or whatever is the the analogy <laughs> you're, you're, you're <laughs> right. gonna you're gonna um raise your kids a certain way if because you believe some psychology yeah. psychological study um i I have a guest coming up soon who's uh talks about the attempts to understand parenting outcomes related to children's success and I think we know very little about that he's more confident about it maybe than I am but uh those that's that is important right yeah, if you're right. implementing a false theory of child raising and you warp your kids as a result that'd be very depressing
1: yeah right
0: well any um any further thoughts about academic life um one thing we haven't really talked about is the incentives that um where they come from, they come from the fact that if you want to be a tenured professor, you've got to usually publish a lot of stuff. Um, maybe instead of fixing the journals, we ought to be trying to fix the universities. Have you thought about that?
1: Uh, it's, a, it's a good idea, um, and it's a very challenging one uh, because universities have many of the same incentives. Uh, and so if a university, for example, says, okay, well, yeah, publishing isn't really important for us, then they're really defining themselves as not being uh, a research university. Uh, And so they have this, they confront many of the same challenges uh, for shifting incentives because of the way that universities gain prestige, particularly as research intensive universities. Um, And so it is, you know, all of the different stakeholders uh, have a lot of these incentives that they're confronted with themselves and have uh, things to wrestle with. And so I, my preference is to start at the low end uh, of the individual daily activities of of scientists and trying to figure out how we can realign their incentives um, so that their everyday practice ends up contributing uh, to a cumulative knowledge base that we can be confident in. Uh, And I'd have to say that, you know, the, 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 the main thing that I take from this, you know, we've had a a conversation that many might call dispiriting about the, the state of science and, I, I actually don't feel that way. I, I'm, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm congenitally, congenitally, optimistic, uh, and I feel like this is a great time uh, for science. Um, you know, science is one of the only ways of knowing that is consistently and actively self-critical, uh, and we, to the extent that it is working the way it should, uh, it will look at its own practices, identify problems in those practices, and come up with new solutions to improve on them. Uh, and so the fact that we have a lot of people enthusiastic about really looking critically at how we do things on a day-to-day basis and figuring out a better way to do it, to me, is very exciting. Uh, it's not depressing at all.
0: My guest today has been Brian Nosek. Brian, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you.